I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You're listening to our daily podcast edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Tara Smith to our show today. She is a professor, an infectious disease epidemiologist, a writer. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Smith. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Uh, professor, you are in the heartland at Kent State University. Um, you said in your introduction to your Twitter followers that you teach a, a class specifically on plagues and pandemics. And of course, you're an expert on contextualizing infectious disease history. And that's why I'm so excited to host you today to ask you about the anti-science climate in this country. And if this particular experience of the COVID pandemic resembles the way the American public reacted to the flu in 1918 or to the ongoing polio epidemics um, of the 20th century, or if in your estimation, there is a much more vocal, uh, much more significant anti-science opinion um, that, that has been uh, cultivated across American society? Yeah, that's... That's a big question. Um, I, I think in a lot of ways it's the same. I think it's the type of sentiment that has always been there as far as kind of distrusting science, distrusting the government, um, having this idea that civil liberties trumps uh, one's responsibility to the broader community. Um, so I think that has always been there. I think what has changed um, in the last 20 years or so is really the ability of people who feel that way to connect with others who have the same feeling and to kind of build these these networks and these communities even from a distance. So, you know, we, we saw very similar things. I'm actually working on a paper um, comparing right now um, our, our moment with COVID with the 1918 flu and you saw a lot of the same things. You saw anti-mask groups pop up. You saw a lot of confusion about the science. You saw, um, you know, people who didn't understand transmission. And of course, at that point, we didn't know even know it was a virus. So of course, there were a lot of, of open questions. Um, but, you know, the, the people who were protesting those things or the people who were, were um, you know, uncertain or spreading rumors about some of these things. They did so with local pamphlets or local letters to the editor of newspapers or, or those types of things. And, and so it was harder to connect with those larger groups, um, especially over wide geographical areas. And now we have the internet. And, and so people can get into these, these silos and meet others who have the same beliefs and you know, have this kind of community bias and echo chambers that affirms those beliefs across great, you know, geographical areas, um, you know, people who would never otherwise meet. So I think that is really the key thing that has changed between now and then is not really the sentiment, but just the way that those ideas can spread so much more quickly and broadly. And really, I think some of them have almost become not maybe mainstream, but certainly something that even people who aren't in those circles have at least probably heard about, even if they don't accept them. What about the incoherence of the American response in 2020 versus the Wilson administration? Um, the 
attempt to conceal the persistence of the disease and its spread, um, which allowed for the community of anti-science, anti-mask um, Americans to bubble over. Um, the, the inability of Fauci and Redfield and Trump and our political leadership to stand as one is arguably what generated the opportunity for the very strong anti-science voice. Right. And I don't think it's in necessarily an inability to stand as one, but I think it is, you know, active discouragement of that from, you know, unfortunately the Trump administration. Uh, you know, it certainly has come to light that it's, it's not as if, again, with, with 1918, you know, we had lots of questions. We thought we knew in some cases what caused the outbreak. And of course, they didn't know until many years later that it actually was a virus. Many people thought it was due to a, a particular type of bacterium, which was incorrect. So there were a lot of open science questions at that time that now, you know, we had... <laughs> you know, we knew the cause of this before it even came to the United States. We had the complete genome of this before it came to the United States, or at least very early um, in our own epidemic. So we had a lot of questions that were already answered, um, even before we had a serious outbreak here. But our, our scientific leaders really have been undermined, unfortunately, by our administration, by our federal administration. Um, and that has really put a black mark on our, um, our science agencies who have led really the globe in, in some of these investigations throughout the 20th century, have, had shown their leadership and their scientific prowess. And now they're being undermined by this administration um, because they have put politics above the science. So I think this is something that is not only different than what we've seen in past outbreaks, but it's something that has the potential to really have a lingering black mark on America's um, governmental science agencies. One of the similarities in the unknowing of COVID in the way that was the unknown of flu uh, was the incapacity of a lot of scientists to see the potential for airborne transmission and that the infectiousness of airborne transmission could be more profound than any virus with which we were previously familiar. Um, do you think that still is an insufficiently understood new reality of this pandemic that is different from 1918 and therefore something like mask wearing or ventilation is more important than it was then. Yeah, I, well, I think one is that we tend to be inside more now than, than in 1918. Um, in 1918, um, there seemed to be less resistance to, you know, doing classwork outside because I think people had been kind of a normalized to having a lot of things that were outside when you had an infectious disease like tuberculosis or something like that, where there were a lot of, you know, open air was really the, the treatment for something like that. So, you know, sleeping outside, having school outside, those types of things were not as strange as I think we see them now. Um, so the ventilation issue wasn't quite as much of a, of a problem as it is now. Um, and I think we, you know, that is one thing where 
the science of previous coronaviruses, I think, led us a little, a little bit in the wrong direction, um, just because not only not necessarily with the aspect of airborne or aerosol transmission, but really with the idea also of this pre-symptomatic transmission, which is where the masks really come in um, handy, is, is that, you know, you, we have transmission of this current coronavirus before symptoms show up. And that really doesn't seem to be the case with, with the SARS pandemic or SARS epidemic or with um, MERS cases. So the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome that we still see pop up occasionally, the other um, epidemic coronavirus. So I, I think in this do case- we know, we, do, do we have any clue as to why this, uh, relative to so many other infections of the last century, but specifically the siblings of this one, do we, do we have any clue why the pre and asymptomatic transmission is so much more pernicious and um, clear than in those previous instances of COVID's coronavirus? Uh, so I am not a virologist, but um, there are a lot of people that are working on that right now. And it seems to stem from the fact that this tends to replicate more in the upper respiratory tract. Um, and so seems to spread from, you know, the nose and, and throat more quickly than uh, MERS and SARS, which tend to replicate more in the lower respiratory tract. So that's one reason that can explain both the um, increased kind of pathogenesis and the uh, higher fatality rate from MERS and SARS than we see with, um, with COVID-19. That seeming difference between kind of where the virus primarily replicates. So it's easier to spread because it uh, replicates primarily in the upper respiratory tract, but it's less deadly because it tends to cause less of the pneumonia and other serious symptoms that you know, SARS classic did. So there are still virologists working on that. That's kind of one of the uh, you know, the hypotheses that I've, I've seen, but we'll still need some more work, especially in lab animals and also, you know, doing more kind of human studies to try to, to figure out if that's the main reason or if there are other things that are playing a role as well. So you're saying the difference between upper and lower respiratory could be related to one's acknowledgement and ownership of symptoms in a pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic mode? Right. Well, potentially. Um, but it, it, it just because that it replicates more in the nose and throat, so it's easily more easily spread um, in those times before a person kind of has that immune response and starts to feel those symptoms. But we don't really know yet, genetically speaking, uh, if you were to analyze under a microscope MERS and, and original SARS versus this, um, what features... Uh, make it so that folks are asymptomatic uh, or pre-symptomatic. And in fact, the variety of outcomes may have more to do with our genetics than the virus's genetics. Right. It could. It's always an interaction between host and, and you know, pathogen genetics, right? Um, so, um, so with this one, they, they, we, again, we have the entire genomic sequence of you know, many of, of the SARS coronavirus 2 um, genomes now to be compared to SARS and MERS. And some of it seems to potentially relate to um, the spike protein. So the spike protein for all of those viruses is what is used to bind to host cells, and then um, from there the virus would enter the cell, replicate, and then eventually leave and, and enter other host cells. 
And there are differences in the way some of those binds, so SARS original versus SARS coronavirus 2 versus MERS, the way that those bind to host cells that could lead to different interactions here. And they're still, again, you know, still working on, on figuring a lot of that out. Unfortunately, um, all this work, especially in animals, has to be done in biosafety level three laboratories, of which there aren't a whole lot of those in the United States and, and Canada. So um, there are only a small group of researchers who are able to do this work and a small group of researchers who are experts in coronavirus. So they are being <laughs> kind of stretched to their limits right now, trying to figure oh, out all of these questions. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the biosecurity level because in a recent thread uh, by another leading scientist, uh, he details all the active vaccinations. And this gets back to the question of skepticism, misinformation, disinformation, and vaccinations. So with the influenza vaccine or flu shot that we get each year, that is an inactivated virus, correct? For the shot, yes. For the nasal spray, it is um, an attenuated live virus. So that's why some people can't get the nasal spray. So in this thread, the the suggestion is that we don't have the security clearance and enough facilities here to be developing a, an inactivated virus in the way that, that China and India are exploring. Um, but, so I wanted to ask you about that and then some of the larger public health questions related to the vaccination regime and deployment that would be necessary to eliminate the pandemic. Uh, but, but what is your understanding of why the United States, unlike China and India, has not pursued that kind of vaccination investigation and exploration? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, from what I have seen, most of it is, is due to some of the potential side effects that we're seeing, again, not for necessarily SARS-2, but when using animal models for SARS-1, um, for doing some testing of, of vaccine candidates, and those vaccines did not seem to um, be quite as safe as those that used pieces and parts of the virus. So instead of taking the whole thing and activating it like we do with flu and using that as the vaccine, that seemed to cause some bad reactions in animals. And, and sometimes this was due um, to almost an overstimulation of the animal's immune response that, that caused the bad reaction. So what most scientists in the US have focused on, again, is that spike protein, that surface protein, but using small pieces of it because they, they've identified some of the parts of that spike protein that can trigger some of these bad responses. So I think that's why they've focused on this is more of a, um, a safety issue that, that of course, you know, you want to have an effective vaccine, but you also want to have one that is going to cause few side effects. And so- Tara, because of the novelty of coronavirus that we're unable to generate that safer vaccine, because you point out that with the flu shot, that is an inactivated virus. So um, I'm, I'm trying to flesh out why the protocol is, is sort of more understood and safety is preserved for the annual flu shot. And it, it would not necessarily be for the creation of an inactivated COVID vaccine. 
Right. Yeah. We've had, you know, we've, we've done flu shots for 50 plus years. We're pretty familiar with those. We know, you know, sometimes what can go wrong or, or where some of the missteps can be. With coronavirus, this is our first human coronavirus vaccine that we're working toward. So, you know, we have to use just some of those um, studies that have been done in animals previously as, as kind of our, our guideposts. So we're really, um, you know, behind the ball compared to our long-term knowledge of influenza virus. With coronavirus, we're just working everything out as we go. Understood. So let's talk about the public health dimension of vaccination. Uh, we touched on this early on, and that is the dis and misinformation around the anti-vax movement and also the anti-mask movement. Um, given the fact that we eradicated polio and that generations came of age understanding the benefit, and I would say the indisputable benefit of vaccination and have since gone in the opposite direction, um, this will be trickier than maybe at any other point in human, in recorded human history to ensure that folks are vaccinated when there is an efficacious regime that is established. Uh, in that respect, do you think it will be very different uh, from the last 50 years um, in understanding the purposefulness and importance of vaccination? Yeah, I do think there will be differences. I mean, with, with polio, you had a lot of skepticism, actually, about the vaccine while it was being developed. And if you look at polls from the time, you find kind of similar things to what we're seeing now with a lot of people saying, you know, they're not going to take it right away. Um, but then when it was released, you had people rushing to get it. Um, so I, I suspect we'll kind of see the same thing here, that even though people are kind of skeptical of it right now, um, when again, we don't even have a finalized vaccine, we don't know what's going to come out of this. I think once we have one that is, has been released, we can look at the safety profile, we can look at its efficacy. Um, you know, scientists like myself and others can, can talk about it. Um, I do think you will see that most people will be accepting of it, but you will still have those, you know, those skeptics who will not go away. Um, we've seen that with polio, we've seen that with smallpox, we've seen that with pretty much every vaccine out there, that there still will be a, a small group of people who will be resistant to the vaccine and who will be loud and making a lot of noise. So I, I think we just have to be honest about the trials, about the results as we're going along, um, you know, about any fear, concern, skepticism we have about the vaccines, but about, you know, why we reached the decision to use the one that we eventually will, will use and what else is coming potentially in the future. I think it will be dangerous if you have one of the two major political parties in the United States uh, on that basis um, fighting against the science. And I think that that would probably be a different dynamic uh, than in the Wilson administration or when we began to understand the debilitation of FDR and the way that polio had plagued the country and, and uh, many lives. At no point during that history was the Democratic Party or the Republican Party an, an anti-mask or an anti-science party. There might have been threads of that in minority positions, but they were 
marginal. Uh, do you fear that this will be different because one of the two major political parties will establish itself vocally, unabashedly as anti-science? Yes, that's definitely a concern. And that's one thing we've tried to emphasize over the years is that, you know, vaccine hesitancy crosses the political spectrum. You can have uh, people who are left-leaning but don't like, you know, quote-unquote chemicals. And so they are concerned about vaccines for that reason. You have people who are, you know, right-leaning libertarian, don't like government interference in their, their health choices and don't like vaccines for that reason. So it has, you know, cut across the political spectrum. And I am concerned, again, especially with, with the administration we have currently, that they have started to politicize that a bit more than we've seen in the past you know, 20, 25 years. Um, I don't know how that will change with the election, of course. Um, things may be very different in you know, January or, or late December, um, whenever we see a, a vaccine rolled out. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that anyone will look at the science. I'm hoping we will have some of the more uh, moderate Republicans who will speak out on, you know, in favor of the vaccine that people can turn to so that it isn't completely a, you know, a left or a right thing. It's, it's just look at the science and don't bring politics into it. Right. There is the concern that if Trump is reelected, there will be a show or sham vaccine, given the fact that he is eager to put this behind him in a politically calculated way rather than a scientifically literate way. So there are any number of scenarios, but the fact is, even if you do take all due diligence and construct something that is considered effective enough to be deployed, you're not gonna be able to do that instantly. And therefore, if folks stop wearing masks, then you could have infection rates at the level we have now or worse with an, an economy that's reopened, right? Yeah, absolutely. And this is something, the vaccine will not change anything overnight. I mean, they, they are working on, um, you know, ramping up doses of whatever vaccine ends up being approved, but that will probably go to first responders first, to other vulnerable individuals, and then more slowly be rolled out to kind of the general public. So it's not something that's going to change overnight, and you will still need to continue with distancing and with mask use and with hand hygiene and all of those things we've already been emphasizing for quite some time. And, and, you know, for most of the vaccines they're looking at, they're likely going to be a two-dose regimen as well. So, you know, you need double the, the doses um, of the amount of, of people that you're planning to vaccinate. So that also will, will take time. Let me ask you this, and it's one of the most curious questions, and I had the chance to interview Tom Frieden in 2016, and then again just recently, and I asked him the same question. I was a student in a class much like yours, um, and was told that we were long overdue for the next pandemic. And, and that was drilled into my consciousness. Um, whereas clearly it wasn't for many other people or they might've heard it then and disregarded. Uh, why did it take so long? Why did not we have the pandemic sooner? Because the forecasts were there and the spillover effects were happening and observed and then it bang it just hits us is that mm -hmm. is that because that's the way it works 
Yeah, I mean, it's all just, it's really a lot of chance. I mean, and we've had pandemics, of course, we've had, you know, multiple influenza pandemics since then. We've had, um, you know, HIV um, and, and other things that were not respiratory that were spread in different ways, but also spread around the globe. So it, it really is just a matter of chance. You know, we, we had two other coronaviruses that have emerged in the last 20 years, but luckily we're just not as transmissible as SARS coronavirus 2 is. So we've um, really gotten lucky um, more than once, I think. And we just didn't, you know, our, our luck did not hold for this one, unfortunately. To what do you attribute globalization and and the correlation between globalization specifically mass transit and the speed at which uh, this duplicated and multiplied uh, do you think that we would have encountered the the pandemic environment no matter what or do you think that modern transportation and globalization um, made made this inevitable yeah, I do think it, it made it inevitable. I mean, I use a graph um, when I talk about emerging diseases that looks at the speed of travel um, over time. And, you know, you can see it, it's gone down to you can be almost anywhere on the globe within about 24 hours now. Um, so that allows any diseases that emerge, you know, again, even in, you know, China, halfway around the world can be to the U.S. in, you know, well within an incubation period. Um, so I, th I think we've seen more of those. And again, we've seen a, a lot of other diseases transmit as well. They just haven't become pandemics. I mean, we had an outbreak of monkeypox due to imported wild rodents in the Midwest, um, you know, shortly after 9-11. Um, that got a lot of attention at the time, but I think it's kind of been forgotten. So we, we've seen these types of epidemics happen over and over again. This is just the first one that has become truly pandemic from this type of, of situation. Final question, uh, Professor. There is status that suggests there were traces of COVID outside of Wuhan before the pandemic emerged from that hot spot, at least ostensibly. Uh, what knowledge do we have, if any, is precise enough to cite here um, that in fact um, this may have started in Wuhan, but it is a possibility that there were folks infected with COVID prior to Wuhan. Yeah, and again, I think that's something that is still being investigated and still still emerging. And it's so hard to really track down some of these retrospectively like that. I mean, for you know most of the Ebola outbreaks, we don't always know patient zero. Um, we don't always know exactly where that emerged from. And I think this is the same here that you know this could have come from um, you know more of a rural area. Um, outside of Wuhan, been spreading there undetected, and then somebody brought it into the city or something like that, and it spread there for a while before coming to the recognition of, uh, you know, medical science in that, that community. So I think we just don't know, um, but there are, again, a lot of people who are, are working on this. Um, looking at the genome of this, it doesn't seem to have started in humans too far before it was recognized, so maybe a you know, month or two, just looking at kind of the molecular clock of the virus, but trying to figure out again exactly how that jumped from an animal to a person and exactly where that happened is really tricky. So I'll leave that up to my virology friends. Tara Smith of Kent State, thank you so much for your insight today. Absolutely, thanks again.